On November 2nd, 2016, I went to my local polling station in Brooklyn and voted, even though I knew my vote wouldn't really count. In New York, it's long been a foregone conclusion that the state would vote for Hillary Clinton for president. And where I live in Brooklyn, my congressional district is so overwhelmingly Democratic that there wasn't a real chance that the Republican could win. Still, I woke up early and walked a few blocks to the local school to vote. You wouldn't believe the line. It was a 90-minute wait. I stayed, but many people didn't. And I didn't feel particularly encouraged doing my civic responsibility in voting. When the results were counted later that night, Hillary won New York, won the popular vote, and lost the presidency. What about my civic responsibility to participate in all the other elections that I was eligible to vote for? On a New York City ballot, depending on the year, you can find candidates for the following public offices. President and Vice President, United States Senators, members of the House of Representatives, Governor and Lieutenant Governor of New York, State Attorney General, State Controller, State Senator, State Assembly, Mayor of New York, Public Advocate, City Controller, Borough President, City Council Members, District Attorneys, Surrogate Judges, State Supreme Court Judges, Civil Court Judges. I think I'm significantly more involved politically than the average person, and I have to admit that I could not name all of the people who will fill these positions and represent me. And if voting for the president felt so useless and required so much time, I began to think about how much time I or anyone else would devote to all of these other positions, none of which carry the import visibility and glamour of the presidency. Most people must subconsciously perform some type of equation in their heads. Importance of office times likelihood my vote counts times the amount of effort involved is equal to some unquantifiable feeling that one should or should not vote. In the 2016 presidential election, the likelihood of my vote counting in the state of New York was small, and the work, not just measured by the time standing in line, but by the effort to familiarize oneself with all the candidates on the ballot, was high, so you would expect it to depress turnout. In an off-presidential election year like 2010, 2014, or 2018, we know from experience that voter turnout is even lower than it is during a presidential year. In 2014, less than 40% of the electorate voted in the November congressional races. How many opportunities does a voter have to be apathetic? I just listed 17 races in total. It turns out that the number of elected officials in the United States exceeds, ready for this number, 500,000 people. Absorb that for a minute. In an article in the Daily Coast, David Neer writes, and I'm quoting here, there are over 3,000 counties in more than 19,000 cities and towns, and almost every one of those has some form of elected government, including county executives, county councils, mayors, and city councils. That still scarcely covers it, though, because that doesn't include things like judges, school boards, water boards, mosquito control boards. Hell, even coroner is an elected position in some places, and in Duxbury, Vermont, they actually elected, yes, the dog catcher. End of quote. Professor Jennifer Lawless of American University published a book in 2012 entitled Becoming a Candidate, Political Ambition and the Decision to Run for Office, where she tallied the total number of elected officials in the United States. The actual number for that year was 519,682. Isn't it obvious that it's impossible to have an involved and participating citizenry if we don't make it exceedingly easy to exercise the vote? as well as exceedingly easy to become educated about the people running for these elected positions.
You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores industries that might be ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to consider. This is the final episode in a three-part series examining online voting and whether we can expect to see voting over the internet in future American elections. In the last episode, I spoke with academics about the benefits and risks of online voting and then discussed how election marketing might change if online voting were to be introduced throughout the United States. In this episode, I'll speak with companies that offer online voting solutions and hear their approaches to prevent hacking of votes conducted on their platforms. I'll also offer my thoughts on where we might see headway in shifting some American elections online. This podcast is brought to you by SaneBox. If your email is anything like mine, you have more emails than you can read. I recently learned about a company that takes out the manual organizing of your inbox. It's called SaneBox. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder. So the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. They also have this feature called the black hole, where you can relegate a sender's messages to obscurity. Here's a deal they're offering to my listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash future. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash future. And they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of their two-week free trial. If I were thinking about starting a company focused on internet voting, I'd be tempted to focus my efforts on the governments that had the largest budgets to pay for my services. In other words, I'd focus on the entities responsible for running federal or state elections in the United States. But if I did that, I'd run into all the objections we've discussed in the prior two episodes about the vulnerabilities of internet voting, such as potential DDoS attacks and hacking threats. In addition to needing to convince these entities that internet voting would make a significant enough impact on voter turnout to justify the risks. Here's another strategy I might employ. We just said that there were 500,000 elected officials in the United States. What if I used a two-prong approach? First, target specific kinds of elections where national security would not be at stake if the elections were hacked. And second, address the technology concerns related to hacking. The elections I would target? Well, Dogcatcher for one, but it's not likely the Russians would target a school board election either. Before we go through the technology concerns, let's talk about who makes the decisions about what election machinery and means for voting are selected in America. For federal elections, the Federal Election Commission makes non-binding suggestions for the states and counties to follow regarding the manner in which they conduct their elections. Because these are just suggestions, the final decisions about how elections will be administered are made at the state and local levels. It follows that every state has its own set of election procedures. In some districts, you can register to vote online. In some districts, you vote by marking a ballot with a number two pencil, where your card is then fed into an optical scanner machine. In other districts, you enter your vote on an electronic touchscreen machine. In some districts, you can vote by mail. In other districts, you must vote by mail. Let's say you wanted to convince all or some of these states to adopt internet voting. What objections would you need to overcome? The biggest one is the vulnerability to hacking. Dan Wallach is a professor in the Departments of Computer Science and Electrical and Computer Engineering and a Rice Scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. He framed the first danger for fraud this way. Step one, voters have to be registered to vote. Some states have a concept of same-day registration, but nonetheless, you have to be registered. Many of the accusations of voter fraud are, are accusing people of registering to vote in illegal ways. 
And that, that's a, a common concern among Republicans. There's very little evidence that supports this conjecture. But to that, to some extent, the, the accusation has nothing to do with the vote casting or tabulation. The accusation has to do with the vote registration. And just to put a fine, uh, a finer point on that, is that people have bypassed procedural requirements to register, but in fact, they were eligible to vote or people that weren't eligible to vote bypassed procedural requirements and therefore became eligible to vote? Well, the people who make these accusations aren't that specific. Um, to the extent that we have any data, it says that a very, very vanishingly small number of people have been convicted of illegally registering to vote and or casting votes under an illegal registration. Voter registration vulnerabilities range from someone registering to vote under the guise of another person's identity to hacking voter registration databases to change the voter rolls. However, the way voter registration works doesn't need to change in order to offer internet voting. So let's ignore the risks in the registration process for now and try to create a framework for the vulnerabilities in the voting process. James Simmons is the Vice President of Elections at Everyone Counts, one of the worldwide leading hardware and software providers for online voting. I spoke with him about the different points in the voting process that were susceptible to tampering. So the first is, is the endpoint, so on the user's computer and manipulating their vote before it's digitally sent to us. I break into your house, I'm in receipt of your mail, I know your social, I type it in, I vote for you. Exactly. All right, so that's, that's vulnerability one. What's vulnerability two? So vulnerability two is in that ballot box, before we've, before we've done anything with it, somehow changing en masse, changing those ballots to reflect something other than what the voters intended. So point two is um, I've installed spyware on your computer. You, in fact, did live in your apartment. You were in receipt, but the spyware or the bug or the virus or whatever it was on your computer allowed me to modify your vote prior to the encryption and the traversing of the vote to you. So actually, I think for us, we would we would put both of those in, in the first bucket, that individual vote before before it goes to us. The second one is the second bucket is. So the second one is being able to mess with this ballot box. So we've received them in our servers. We've decoupled them from any kind of possibility of identifying the voter. Got it. What's the third? And the third one? So then the third one is really the point of coming out of that box. So the process of decrypting them and counting them up. Um, if there's some compromise to the software there is really point number three. Before we talk about proposed solutions to the different points of vulnerability, it's important to point out that no system is beyond hacking. That includes the electronic voting machines at polling stations and any system facilitating internet voting. The standard for implementation of any system can't be that it's hack-proof. Instead, the standard we seem to have gravitated towards is that a system needs to be extremely unlikely to be hacked. And if it is hacked, there is a mechanism or methodology to detect the hacking. Most experts agree that while they can't point to any instance in the U.S. where the hacking of electronic voting machines changed the result of an election, many if not all of our electronic voting machines are theoretically capable of being hacked. The conventional wisdom to address this danger is that electronic voting machines should be accompanied by a paper trail, so elections are subject to subsequent audits in order to evaluate their accuracy. There is another method for verifying the results, and that is through conducting risk-limiting audits that randomly sample voting data to assess the statistical likelihood 
that the results coming from an electronic machine don't materially diverge from the results measured by that machine in prior elections. Let's talk about internet voting. It's difficult to imagine how a paper audit trail would work, as one of my interviewees pointed out. The goal of internet voting is to reduce the workload on the voter, and so it's not immediately obvious how we might accomplish that while also requiring the voter to print out her ballot and separately mail it in. While I wouldn't rule out someone coming up with a creative solution here, it would seem that in the short term, the more important place to focus is on implementing the kind of risk-limiting audits that I just mentioned. Again, this means looking for voting patterns of internet voters that substantially diverge from how you might have expected them to vote. If you find such anomalies, or worse yet, find that some votes have been manipulated, there would need to be a procedure to determine whether those votes would be disqualified or if those votes were cast sufficiently in advance of the final day for voting, whether or not they could be recast. This clearly is a complex challenge. It's beyond the scope of this podcast series to propose or endorse specific solutions to these vulnerabilities. In the first episode, I tried to demonstrate that increasing voter turnout was a worthy problem to solve and was something that should inform the consideration we collectively devote to internet voting. In the second episode, my focus was on examples of internet voting that already exist in the United States and around the world, and how campaign marketing would fundamentally change in the United States if internet voting became pervasive. In this final episode, I'll share with you a few interesting initiatives that address some of the voting and tabulation concerns. These are definitionally incomplete solutions. In the first episode, I spoke with John Koza, author of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact that is promoting state legislation that would have the effect of eliminating the Electoral College. He hated the idea of internet voting and cited its lack of transparency as one reason why we shouldn't use it. As someone with a PhD in computer science, I would say it's a terrible idea. There's no possible way to make it secure. And I think if you talk to most computer scientists who thought about this, you will find that same reaction is it's a pipe dream. Here's the problem with internet voting, is that it concentrates in the hand of one or a couple of people who are technical experts, the chance to cheat with no meaningful oversight. When, when you run an ordinary election, you have ordinary citizens at the polling place running the polls. You have party observers, usually from both parties, watching the activities and, if necessary, challenging things or making notes of things. They're able to see the process and understand it. No layman can understand the process or meaningfully audit it or make it accountable when you have one or two programmers controlling the machinery in a way that's completely opaque to the public. After our interview, he sent me an email with this hypothetical, showing he was particularly concerned about the existence of undetected malware on the voter's computer. I'm quoting here. All you would have to do is hack the visual interface that the voter uses on his home computer. When the voter clicks on candidate X, 5% of the time the vote is recorded for candidate Y. You don't want to be greedy, 5% is more than sufficient, he writes. Most of the companies offering internet voting will tell you that the difficulty associated with installing malware on a sufficient number of computers, as well as the levels of encryption they use, make the wide-scale manipulation of votes that could sway an election impossible. But the fact remains that if malware is installed on a computer, it's impossible to guarantee that a user won't enter a vote for Clinton, and then unbeknownst to her, 
that vote would be transmitted to the voting authorities as a vote for Trump. I'm not sure any of the companies I spoke with completely put my fears to rest about this scenario not happening, but I found the direction taken by Antonio Mugica, CEO of London-based online voting solutions company Smartmatic, to be the most compelling. This is an excerpt of what he wrote me on how to confront the malware issue. One, procedural security. A simple instruction to the voter to update and run their antivirus software would highlight and eliminate 99% of malware infection. Two, cast as intended voter verification. Once a voter has cast their vote, they use a separate physical device, for example, a smartphone, to check the correctness and integrity of their vote as it was received by the voting server. Three, multiple session voting. If in the unlikely event that the verification, we just talked about above, was incorrect and that the vote has been manipulated, multiple session voting gives the voter the opportunity to vote again on a different uninfected device and perform vote verification. The separate device solutions seem to offer a lot of promise. Make me vote on my computer and then verify my vote by calling me back on my phone. This raises other problems. Did I provide my phone number to the system when I voted? And if I did, then a hacking of the first session would allow the hacker to verify the vote by phone. But perhaps the voting system already had an independent way of allowing me to verify my identity from the vote in order to ensure the secrecy of one's vote. Would such a system be foolproof? No. We know nothing is foolproof, but if we combined it with a risk-limiting audit consisting of a regression analysis of randomly selected votes, it seems like we would be substantially reducing the risk of outside manipulation of an election. Is it enough to go forward with using internet technologies to conduct our national elections? I don't know. It certainly has enough promise to be worthy of more study. While malware on the computer is the point of greatest vulnerability in the online voting process, there is also substantial concern with the vulnerability of any database where votes are received and eventually tabulated. It may be easier to secure a single database than millions of computers, or eventually smartphones, but the consequences of changing how votes are stored or how they are counted can have far more devastating results than from a hack to a single voter's computer. Here too, though, it seemed like the companies I interviewed were engaged in innovative thinking towards securing these points of vulnerability. One widely used technology that could be employed to make internet voting more secure is blockchain, which was first conceived in 2008 and then used to build the digital currency Bitcoin in 2009. Bitcoin is the most well-known of all the cryptocurrencies, or currencies that are not backed by the full faith and credit of any sovereign nation. This is the stuff that's intended to replace the US dollar. As you might imagine, a currency that has no physical component to be exchanged in a sale is an obvious target for hackers. If it were possible to steal money simply by changing the name on the ledger, then you can imagine that lots of less than savory characters would be inclined to figure out how to accomplish that. The blockchain technology that underlies Bitcoin is designed to be less vulnerable to hackers due to its reliance on a decentralized database. According to Wikipedia, a blockchain is a, quote, distributed database that maintains a continuously growing list of ordered records called blocks. Each block contains a timestamp and a link to a previous block. By design, blockchains are inherently resistant to modification of the data. Once recorded, the data in a block cannot be altered retroactively, end quote. 
Blockchains are usually constructed with thousands of servers around the world where each server requires directions from another server that comport with the blockchain standard before the new server will modify its ledger. Again, it's important to point out that nothing is completely hack-proof and blockchain technologies have also been hacked. Follow My Vote is a startup focused on offering open source online voting using blockchain technology. Adam Ernest, the CEO, gave me a simple explanation of how blockchain works. But what makes that ledger special? I mean, there are other ledgers, right? I could maintain a ledger in a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. I could put one in a Google spreadsheet. What, what is special about that ledger? That ledger is, is, is actually decentralized. And so decentralization of database management is really the key to Bitcoin and blockchain technology. What it is, is there's several servers around the world that have all agreed to, in Bitcoin's case, mine Bitcoin. They, they're helping to process and verify transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Let's start with square one. Okay, so um, you're managing the blockchain, I'm managing the blockchain, and, and Jessica's managing the blockchain. Okay, when we add data, so we have three copies of the database. Currently, right now, most databases are centralized databases. They're a single source of truth. So a hacker can come in, hack that data, change whatever records they want without anyone being the wiser. Be being that blockchain technology is decentralized um, database management, in, in this system, um, Andrew, you would have a copy of the database, Jessica would have a copy of the database, and I would have a copy of the database. We would see a new transaction come in and be like, oh, oh, I want to I wanna verify that because there's a reward for verifying that. So I'm going to take this transaction and take it through all the, the necessary protocols to verify that that transaction is legit and add it to my copy of the, the database. But then I go to you and I say, Andrew, I got a new record. Please add it to your copy. And Jessica, please add it to your copy. Well, I can't do that. I I have to not only send you the new record, but I have to you have to I have to send you my entire copy of the database that I've built to date that I have. So if I've edited any transactions or any votes, when I submit my new database record to you, you're going to compare it against your own copy of the database. And you'll be able to see, has Adam gone back and tried to change any of these transactions? And if he has? And if he has, my submission gets rejected. And it becomes immediately known to everyone within the network that I tried to, tried to hack the system. One recurring criticism of the companies offering internet voting solutions is that they offer black box solutions where, because the inner workings of their technology cannot be examined, the technology is then subject to manipulation without any way to conduct a proper audit. Ironically, this same criticism is used against the electronic voting machines that are currently being used in polling stations for presidential elections. It would be too easy to simply say that the standard of the introduction of internet voting is that the system security only has to be equal to that of the electronic voting machines in polling stations. Such a standard wouldn't make any sense because we know the security measures of our existing systems are greatly lacking. For US elections, there are three companies that produce the majority of our electronic voting machines. Hart InterCivic, Dominion Voting Services, which owns Premier, formerly known as Diebold, as well as Sequoia, and Election Systems and Software. In the last election, there were 52 different types of voting machines in use. 
states and counties have the discretion to choose what types of machines they want to buy. Electronic voting machines have made headlines more or less since they've been introduced into American elections. In Florida, during the 2000 election, there were a number of issues with electronic voting machines made by Diebold, a company with a CEO who raised funds for the Republican Party and was outspoken about his support for George W. Bush. The machines tabulated votes incorrectly in Volusia County, Florida, but the vote count was then corrected through a hand count of paper ballots. Some of the newer touchscreen electronic voting machines that we currently use for our elections don't offer a paper trail and therefore make future audits essentially impossible. Another criticism of the electronic machines at polling stations is that their inner workings are not made available for outside inspection, thereby exposing elections to the risk that the manufacturer of the machines is a bad actor. The rationale of the manufacturer keeping the inner workings of the machine secret goes like this. We can't tell you how the machine works, or else you might be able to hack it. The rejoinder would go something like this. If you don't tell us how the machine works, how do we know that you didn't program it to count the votes as you wanted them to come out, which would change what the voters actually intended? The companies focused on providing solutions for internet voting are trying to get ahead of this problem. One answer several of them discussed with me is the use of open source software, where the source code powering these machines is exposed to the public for examination. Follow My Vote uses open source software. Seidel says their code is secure open source in that they allow people to view it who register and promise not to distribute it to the public as long as the government authority running the election approves the request. Computer science academics remain unconvinced. All of the professors I interviewed were deeply skeptical of the implementations that these voting companies had deployed. So the question remains, is the voting industry likely to be upended by legislative or administrative agencies changing the way we vote? Or can we expect innovation to be led by technologists? The data suggests that the best way to improve voter participation in the United States is to offer voting on a weekend and to permit same-day registration. Same-day voter registration has been linked to as much as a 10 percentage point increase in turnout. With respect to voting on a weekend, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I also think technology can make a significant difference in improving voter turnout. James Simmons of Everyone Counts believed that companies, not government, will lead us toward lasting change. The private industry always leads government. That's that's pretty much a truism. And, and a lot of what we're doing and where we're focusing in the private space and really trying to get into some very visible meaningful areas that that a lot of people know about and care about and get them exposed to it so that they take that with them and say if i can vote for everything else that i might want to you know make my opinion known on online why can i not do it for one of the decisions that really really matters antonio mugica of smartmatic gave me his prediction on where he thought we'd see changes come first i think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of online mobile and internet voting tools for non-government elections. And you're going to see a series of platforms that are going to allow people to participate and engage in decision-making uh, in kind of networked environments. And I think this is gonna happen in parallel and completely separate from kind of government election systems. And I think that movement will become uh, so important and will get so much usage 
that then it would spill over onto the political markets. I think uh, if governments today wanted to implement online voting, even starting only with, let's say, uh, people that have mobility problems and cannot get out of their homes or overseas voters, they could do it. The technology is there. The technology is ready for prime time, regardless of what some academics seem to think. What is not ready are the politicians. I think the politicians are very afraid to bring this out and they're being extremely cautious, I think too cautious. And uh, I think there will be you know, places like Estonia that are doing it now, have been doing it for many, many years and you have the entire population voting online. You have places again like Utah that ran the Republican primary with, you know, anybody that wanted to vote online could vote online. So I think you will see more of this happening over the next two to three years. And at the same time, over the next five years, I think you will see these non-government elections that are going to happen and, and civic engagement is going to get a lot more fashionable. It's going to be a bigger trend, let's say, among citizens around the world. And I think the convergence of these two things eventually will bring online voting into into mainstream democracies. I don't think it's a short period of time. It might take 10 years, it might take seven, mostly because of the cultural fears in the mainstream stakeholders today. So exactly how big is the U.S. market opportunity that we are talking about? If I just looked at hardware, software, and services spent to offer online voting for elections, do I think there are yearly expenditures that exceed a billion dollars? Well, I know in some years that's true. The federal government provided financing for new electronic voting machines with the Help America Vote Act, called HAVA, which passed in 2002 and allocated $3.9 billion to the states for such expenditures. But is this the kind of spending that is made every year in the absence of federal subsidies? It's difficult to find statistics on that, but it doesn't seem like there has been a significant influx of federal or state money being used for electronic voting machines since HAVA. I know that if you define voting more broadly to include work that companies like SurveyMonkey and Google surveys do, and if you extend that still further to include corporate elections, then the amount of the market size increases significantly. So where do I come out on internet voting? Entrepreneurs approach problems with a thesis. We have XYZ problem. If we apply ABC technology, we can fix it. Almost 50% of Americans don't vote in a presidential election. And I believe that is profoundly bad for our democracy. The working hypothesis behind this research was that if we let people vote over the internet, more people will vote and with greater participation comes greater civic involvement. Unfortunately, the complexity of this problem belies such a simple answer. With all of its challenges, it's not obvious when we will be able to introduce internet voting. Here's what I do know. We should move voting to a weekend. The Electoral College is an anachronism. If we can't outright abolish it, we should actively lobby in state legislatures for passage of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. This is the legislation where states agree to commit their electoral votes in favor of whichever candidate won the national popular vote regardless of how their individual state voted. And finally, notwithstanding the real and deserved skepticism around internet voting, we should encourage public and private investment towards assessing the circumstances under which it becomes viable to introduce such voting throughout the United States. I say this fully aware of the conflicting data regarding the correlation between accessibility and turnout, 
because I believe that internet voting would ultimately transform the way we approach election marketing. Online marketing for political campaigns would mostly be designed to drive click-to-vote behavior. Advertising for these types of elections can raise awareness for internet voting solutions, thereby creating a virtuous cycle of interest and participation. Where might it start? I mentioned earlier that we have over 500,000 elected officials in the United States, ranging from president to Congress to more local officials, down to the hyper-local, which includes everything from the school board officials to the local dog catcher. For positions that don't impact our national security and that are easy to audit because the number of people who participate in the election is so low, imagine races with less than 100 people eligible to vote. We may see online voting come first as a complement to in-person voting, and then as a replacement to in-person voting. Online voting holds the promise of significant cost savings when it comes to reducing the number of in-person polling stations. Still, without significantly greater certainty about the ability to prevent hacking of an internet voting system, we aren't ready to introduce internet voting into our federal elections or even statewide elections. But because I think internet voting remains a pursuit worthy of additional consideration, we should conceive of this time as almost lab time, where the selection of races is based on those small in scope that can be accompanied by comprehensive audits to reduce the consequences of a hacked election. This wasn't the conclusion I hoped for when I began this podcast. I think we all crave simplicity when we are searching for a solution to a problem. I would still encourage entrepreneurs interested in this space to explore solutions to this problem, although I can't confidently tell you that it shares the gold rush attributes which characterize some of the other verticals that I'll be discussing in the Predicting Our Future series. But there is a higher good here. What's most important is that we should make this issue of increasing voter turnout and perfecting the process of voting in America one of the defining issues of our time. And in that regard, no solution should be beneath examination. Nothing less than the essence of our democracy depends upon it. You've been listening to the Future of Online Voting series as part of Predicting Our Future. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. This is Predicting Our Future.